Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The summer of 2020 are strange, unsettling times. This theme has come up many times in in this show. Uh, A couple of days ago, uh, we had Eric Lonergan on the show, uh, the co-author of Angrynomics. Um, And... It seems as if everybody these days is angry, angry about something. Uh, We complained endlessly, of course, President Trump is the uh, subject of of much of our anger, but we're angry at the universities, we're angry at the legal system. Um, We are angry at political parties. Uh, We're angry, or some people are angry at coastal Americans, others are angry at the people who live between the coasts. All too often, it's very hard to actually put that anger into words. But if there's one way to perhaps summarize that anger, it's a lack of faith and confidence in traditional institutions. Indeed, intellectuals themselves, the elite elite intellectuals are themselves in a state of civil war, which we've covered in this show too. So how do we make sense of this crisis of authority, this ubiquity of anger in not only perhaps contemporary America, the America of 2020, but also uh, the West generally in in 2020, the democratic West or perhaps the quasi-democratic West. Uh, Martin Guri is a former CIA officer and the author of and I and I use this word carefully, a, a cult book. In 2014, he wrote his one and only book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Many people believe that, that Martin put his finger on this uh, inchoate crisis, this crisis that's so hard to put into words. Martin, um, is really the core of our problem in 2020 uh, the crisis of authority or perhaps the crisis of traditional elites in early 21st century America? Well, Andrew, first of all, let me say that you, you've made my day by calling my book a cult book. I will, I will tell my wife that so she treats me with appropriate respect. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't necessarily mean it as a compliment. Some, some, <laughs> I, I wrote a book called Cult of the Amateur, which is a cult book in my mind, although in many other people's minds, it's a horrible book. So cults aren't necessarily good, but anyway. And if you look at the movies, that, that puts you in some pretty shady categories too. So, okay, we'll pass that. Um, I, I believe uh, this is what the book is about, that we are in the very early stages of a of a colossal transformation. Uh, We are moving from the industrial model of organizing society to something that doesn't even have a name yet, okay? So I I believe that um, the past 
is embedded in the institutions that you were talking about. These are legacy institutions. They're 20th century institutions. And the elites who manage them, um, for very good reasons, find them very comfortable. They were, in the olden days, uh, you had, uh, it was top down, it was a steep pyramid. You rule from the top, no matter what institution you're talking about, it could be media, it could be academia, it could be government. Um, you had uh, uh, basically took your authority for granted if you had certain accreditation, if you stood in a certain place, people were bound to listen to you. Uh, you talked and everybody else listened. And that is probably the thing that the elites today find most demoralizing and horrifying is that everybody talks back. Um, it was total broadcast mode and uh, information was very tightly controlled. I don't think for any nefarious reason. They just weren't that many sources of information. That's what I did in CIA. I uh, I was an analyst of global media. Um, and I can tell you for many, many, many years of my career, maybe the first half, um, it was a trickle. Open information was a trickle. You could go to a country, and uh, a democratic country, prosperous, Western, France, say, and you could do France with two newspapers. I mean, uh, it, it was almost nothing. And then... Practically overnight, the tsunami of information just swept that world away. Uh, started, I guess, by a, a, an earthquake uh, somewhere around, uh, let's say, Palo Alto, uh, the, the epicenter. Um, and um, I think what ha what has happened is our our social and economic and, and everyday lives today are very different from the institutional life. Uh, we can, for example, I mean, I can get, I'm married, so I won't, but I could, if I wanted to get a date uh, with a click of the, of the mouse, uh, literally at the speed of light or buy a car or take a trip and rent an apartment, buy a house at the click of the mouse. I mean, during the pandemic, we practically lived off of Amazon. I didn't have to go anywhere. Um, meanwhile, if you want to get a, a passport at six weeks, if you want to get a building permit, it's maybe two years, maybe 10 years, who knows? Uh, when you deal with government, you're dealing with the industrial model of doing things. And I think a lot of the anger that you refer to is essentially the anger of the 21st century public uh, against these elites that seem so desperately uh, willing to cling to a 20th century uh, industrial models of organization. But the twist to your argument, Martin, so far you sound as if you could have come out of Silicon Valley and you talk about the sweeping away of elites and this democratization of culture and society and politics and economics as if it's a good thing. But my understanding of your work is that in the tradition of uh, of Pareto and many other 20th century European sociologists and political thinkers, you acknowledge that elites, for better or worse, are inevitable. And that the fix to the sweeping away of these 20th century elites is not this radical democratization of society, but actually the creation of new elites. Um, is that fair? Are you in the Pareto camp who see the inevitability of elites in yeah, society, think, in I, any society? I think when you see that Pareto curve applied to almost any human activity, it's there, right? So, um, yeah, I I think it's not a question of, of uh, 
what do I want or what do we want or what does the public want? It's a question of what is, what can happen. And you cannot run a modern, sophisticated uh, nation of 320 million people or much less than that even without having elites. I mean, the reality of the case is that when there are three people in a room, one person rises and the other two kind of follow, right? I mean, this is the human instinct. So it's it's um, it's less a question of I mean I think the uh, society can be uh, much more democratized. To say that there are elites does not necessarily mean that the um, uh, pyramids have to be massively steep. Does not necessarily mean that elites have to be surrounded by you know metal detecting machines and bodyguards and and, and travel back and forth in in limousines. Does not mean that they are essentially uh, their reward for having risen to elites is the social distance between them and us. None of that is necessary. You can bring that down that pyramid down a lot, but in the end, you cannot do without elites. And yes. I think the one the obvious way out of this, I think part of the problem uh, that our elites manifest is that they are they are reactionary. They love the 20th century. They want to stay uh, up at top and they want to keep that social distance and do some of the horrible things, honestly, that they have done by being out of touch with the, with the public. You know, the, the, in some se- sense, you can call them the, the Harvey Weinstein elites, right? The people who feel well, like... Well, but is, is that really fair? I mean, Harvey Weinstein or Epstein, I mean, these are extreme characters. Not everybody is a Weinstein or an Epstein. But would it be fair to say... Uh, Speaking of cult books, uh, the, the cult, the cult book of the 1990s was uh, Christopher Lash's The Revolt of the Elites, who understood exactly what was going to happen. He predicted that the socioeconomic and political elites would appropriate the language of the street. Uh, in uh, David Brooks talked about them as bobos. Lots of other people have come up with names of them. Uh, these are the people now dominating Twitter. They're the people dominating social media. Uh, so it's not as if this, these elites have given up power. They just no longer acknowledge that they're part of the elite and they've appropriated the language of the street. Is that fair? I mean, if you read Ortega Gasset going back even a few decades beyond that to almost 100 years ago, I, I, just almost exactly 100 years ago, he says uh, essentially a an excellent elite is different from the public. They kind of embody uh, the virtues, the ideals that a society uh, aspires to. So mm. when you when you look at those ideals and you say, well, okay, that's just a fine words, but what does that mean like in a human life? Our elites, you know, you think of Abe Lincoln being honest and, and you think of um, Thomas Edison being persistent. Uh, they embody certain ideals that our society um, uh, aspires to. And so they lift the public up by, you know, they, everybody was told you have to be honest like like George Washington or Abe Lincoln. Or you have to be persistent like, like Edison. We aspire to that. We model ourselves on people who in some sense are superior. I mean, that's a, a terrible word to use in this day of egalitarianism, but but they are superior to, to the run of people. I think our present elites, uh, which uh, um, Ortega Gasset would say is, is the, um, the symptom of a decadent society, 
have the opposite. They want to do exactly what you said. They want to be use uh, what the public does. They want to speak in public jargon. They want to be just like you and me, except of course they still want the limousine and they still want the mansion and, and they, yeah. And sometimes they still want the girls as well. I mean, it's unfair maybe, but uh, it, it happens. So um, that I, I would say that 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 is uh, the distinction that I would make is one between uh, a truly excellent. I mean, the word elites is not a bad word. It's supposed, it means excellent. <laughs> it's, mm. it's very weird that it's come to mean something derogatory, but it means excellent. Uh, and, and not that long ago, we admired our presidents and, and we thought that they had some excellent qualities in them. So um, I think basically what we need is um, to return to that model. And, and the way we do that is not by bringing in the 20th century, but essentially how does that model play out in this basically transformed universe that we're headed towards? Yeah, and, and not only is it an open question, but it's the all-important question, which very few people are actually openly speaking about because it's a dirty question, because it's a question that makes people very uncomfortable. I, I think you put your finger on something uh, important, and I also think... Uh, in your last uh, blog post, Looking Glass Politics on the Mercator site, I know you're a fellow of the Mercator Center, um, you talk about one of the, the current crises is this mixing of the public and the private. And traditional elites have always been able to separate the public and the private. The problem, of course, is that public virtue is often reflected in, in private vice, but in historical terms, JFK was a great president, in spite of his private immorality, I think Clinton is an interesting figure here, and he represents the privatization of political life. Why do we need to re-separate, Martin, the public and the private, in order to rebuild our elites? Well, actually, it's not that we need to re-separate. It's, it's, we need to find out, that, and that is a really deep problem, right? Uh, we need to find out to what extent we can and should separate those. Part of this new digital environment is essentially, you know, the old industrial model, there was a very tidy, very splendiferous front stage area where the elites went and performed. Then they went behind the curtain and they did whatever, right? They partied, if you want. Um, this model uh, uh, that, that has been uh, basically thrust upon them by the digital uh, world is more of everything is backstage. Everybody's informal. Nobody's wearing their tuxes. We're all kind of chumps together, except obviously we're not, right? So um, I, I, uh, the degree to which they can be separated, uh, I would say the first thing to, to work for is the public. This is a, a question for the public, not the elites. The public, because you know when I, when I tweet, there's Donald Trump's tweet right next to it. Donald Trump is sitting next to me in Twitter. My God, you know, and, and I could be talking to him. He's like just the guy next to me in the bar. All right. And he often sounds that way too. So, um, uh, it, it's, so there it is. I, I, do I feel towards him? Like I would feel towards a distant, uh, elite person who is generating events in some faraway land. And no, I feel that about him the way I would feel about my personal friends and family, people who I talk to in a, in a private setting. So the feelings that are evoked by that are very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. The, the, the internet, the digital world has a way of personalizing the public. 
you know, personalizing politics, for example. And so the emotions that get unleashed by that, and I mostly disagree with the angrynomics uh, um, theory, uh, which is much more uh, economics oriented. I think there is just a tremendous confusion between what is a personal emotion uh, that used to be attached to the people you really felt strongly about, your your wife that you love deeply, your boss that you hated powerfully, you know, uh, that all your really intense emotions were within your circle, uh, have now been detached from that circle and attached to people you've never met in your life. You think you have, but you really have not. So um, part of the detachment between uh, the public and, and private, it's not the elites that have to do it necessarily, although they, they should be able to behave in ways that can model this. Uh, but the public has to realize that um, Donald Trump is not the buddy uh, that's sitting next to you uh, on the bar. He is, he's not, okay? And you should have emotions that are appropriate for a, a president and politician that you either like or dislike, but not to somebody who you feel uh, existential, you know, love or loathing of, uh, which is what happens in that private uh, sphere. This is a, a, a theory, by the way, that it's not original with me. It was put together by by Ardell Kling, who's one of the smartest people I know. We had Brett Stevens on the show last week as well, mm. talking about similar themes and uh, his analysis. He's not always the most popular guy around, of course, but his analysis is that the the problem with identity politics is that it, again, collapses the public and the private so that everyone takes everything so personally if you define everything in Id identity political terms. Uh, but uh, Martin, you mentioned the internet and the role of social media and your argument in the revolt of the public is very much based around digital society. Is this new elite really one in Silicon Valley? Uh, do we need to look at the Tim Cooks and the... Um, and the the other leaders of Silicon Valley, the Elon Musks, uh, the Mark Zuckerbergs, are these the elite who won't acknowledge that they're elites? Uh, Tim Cook might, but certainly Musk and Zuckerberg behave as if they're still on the barricades. Do these people need to grow up? Are they the real 21st century elite? That's a really good question. Um, actually, I think our elites, I know a lot of those people. I mean, not not a lot. I know some of them. Uh, I know some, a lot of people in Silicon Valley. I don't, I don't know that I can, I can tell you that uh, they're all of that, that level necessarily. Uh, but I think our, our, there's a division in our elites. I think that division became um, really traumatic uh, with the election of Donald Trump. Because the story that was told about the election of Donald Trump by the elites, and of course, Hillary Clinton was like, whenever I want to cite an elite of the elites, there she was, okay, saying mm. all kinds of bizarre things that only a person sitting at the very top of a pyramid without any knowledge of what was going on below could ever say. Um, so his election, the story was, it was lies and Facebook, Russians and, and fake news and Facebook. So suddenly this, this world of, of uh, um, Silicon Valley became the enemy to what I would call the political and media establishment, the old elites, right? Um, and it's been kind of interesting to watch the Silicon Valley people try and dance their way around that. Uh, you are right. They are totally elites themselves. They are an establishment of a kind. They are globally, in some ways, 
far more powerful than, say, our media elites. Uh, I mean, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, Amazon, even with the sale of books, uh, is far more powerful. Each one of those is far more powerful than the New York Times or uh, CNN or any of those outlets. So they they come from a background of well, you're out there in California. I don't know if you're anywhere near them, but but I mean, essentially, this was a hippie mentality that 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 uh, Silicon Valley grew out of, and and you know the Declaration of Independence of cyberspace and, and John Perry Barlow and all of that. Um, and there's been a struggle, you know. Basically, they've been tagged the bad guys, and you can tell that some of them are saying, no, 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 I, I don't want to be the bad guy. Um, Bezos bought himself a house in Georgetown and opened up a uh, HQ2 here in Northern Virginia, where I live, very, very close to uh, Washington, D.C. Um, there is a, an attempt to kind of, what do I do? You look at Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg is like Hamlet, all right? Zuckerberg is like to be or not to be. He has Every time he makes a statement, it's either, no, 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 no. We're all for free expression. Are we going to stick by it? That's where he seems to be right now. But he has said, we're waiting for government to regulate us. I mean, he has made the most blunt requests for government regulation, which I don't know what that would look like, uh, of any serious CEO of a platform that I have ever heard. So he's he's wavered back and forth. Um, I, uh, you know, they are elites. They are different. Silicon Valley, in my experience, they are, I live here uh, uh, in the East, and the Silicon Valley people, their minds haven't quite shut down to the degree that they have here in the East. Here in the East, we're still in the 20th century, man. It, it has not, it has not gotten into January 1st, 2000. It hasn't happened yet. Okay, uh, Silicon Valley has a lot of dysfunctions and a lot of a lot of questions. Uh, but number one, it's a youth culture. You can be very young and very wealthy. There are lots of people like that. Um, the the person that published my book. Patrick Collison, who is the head of Stripe and, and the Stripe Books. I mean, when I met him, he was 30 years old, all right? And I won't tell you how much he's worth, but it's a lot. Uh, and these people just look at life the way young people do, not like us old people back east. They, they have an openness to them. They have questions. We have nothing but answers here, and the answers all look back to, to the 20th century. Uh, the end of the 20th century, as I said, I think, uh, alongside your book, um... Uh, the Revolt of the Public, uh, uh, Lash's book, uh, The yeah. Revolt of the Elites, is very useful, but perhaps e even in terms of, of making sense of the way in which uh, the, the Silicon Valley has successfully transformed the counterculture into the ideology of a new elite. But um, as you're stuck in the 20th century uh, on the East Coast, uh, <laughs> Martin, uh, what, yes. in addition to um, the, your book, The Revolt of the public, this cult classic. Um, what else should people be reading to oh, make sense of the future? Perhaps uh, is there a twenty-first century book being written yet on all this stuff? I think there's a whole number of books that are out there now. I have a terrible memory. I always say that, and so uh, I remember like the last three hours, and then after that is I'm I'm, I'm like a, a very very old person. Well, you you would say that you remember oh, the CIA. you used to right, work for the right, CIA, right? right? Right, but you know what? When I get to be really really old, uh, nobody's gonna notice when I go dotty because I've always been that way. So that, that's right. an advantage. Um, yeah, I think there are, you know, books that look at aspects of it. Um, I I 
I try to provide a framework in my book for the for the the whole thing. So it's probably very broad, but doesn't look at any you know like the revolt of uh, of the elites looks at the elites in particular. Um, if you see um, Yuval Levin's book, uh, A Time to Build, mm-hmm. uh, it looks at institutions and it talks about how institutions have gone from being formative, so that you. Um, you were made by them, and by the time you got to the top, you represented that that the values and ideals and, and even the, the habits and, and and the rhetoric of that institution to being performative, uh, which means it's just a platform for the elites to dance on, right? <laughs> to, to to do their thing, um, so that you get elected to office, so that you can basically show off in some in some way or another, or perform, let's say. Um, I think it's a really good book. I think that's a really good insight. Um, and I think that what he says is true. Um, Seinep Tofetsky has a book whose title escapes enough from tear gas to Twitter, I think it is. And at least looks more at the, the public in revolts. I mean, you have to realize that you talked about the democratic world. Uh, the revolts have been everywhere. I mean, in the year 2019 alone, there were probably around at least 25 major street insurgencies, and they were in every continent, and they were against every system of government from rank rank tyranny to very democratic, from poor to very wealthy. It seems to be pretty universal. And it seems to be against not the system of government, but the, the shape of modern government, this, this pyramidal government that is the same when you think about it, uh, whether it's a Russian government, which is kind of despotic, or the American government, which hopefully is less so, but the shape is the same. They they have these ministries and these the secretaries and these presidents, and it's all very high. And that seems to be what the public is is rebelling against. And so Neptefesky talks about that. Talks about some of the pathologies that the public seems to encounter itself. How it seems to be what I talk about in my book as well. It seems to be against. It's against this, but it has no organization, no um, leadership, no ideology. It's very anti-ideology. So when you get to the point of um, you succeed and you get asked by the powers that be, what is it that you want? Andrew Cuomo just asked that of the of the protesters, uh, the, the Floyd protesters. He said, you won, you won, you got what you want. And then he turned around and said, what do you want? He had no idea, and neither do they in many ways. They know what they're against, but they don't have a united... The, each person in that crowd probably has a different idea of what they want for, for uh, very deep structural reasons. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.